The Interchange is brought to you by Prisma Energy Solutions. Prisma Energy Solutions provides a unique financing model for CNI and utility-scale battery storage systems. Prisma's customized lease options can help you reduce energy demand, participate in both energy and ancillary service markets, improve renewables integration, increase system reliability, and reduce your carbon footprint. There's no designer technology risks, no maintenance hassle, and the upfront expense is greatly reduced, especially compared to a system purchase. Visit prismaenergy.com to learn more. The interchange is also brought to you by Vertzilla Energy. Vertzilla is a global leader in flexible power plants, energy storage, and complete life cycle solutions. Vertzilla is leading the energy transition with the Atlas of 100% Renewable Energy, an open access tool based on the modeling of 145 countries and regions worldwide to illustrate the cost-optimal 100% renewable energy system. Find out more at Vertzilla, that's W-A-R-T-S-I-L-A dot com slash Atlas. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Greentech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM and one half of this show. The other half is Shale Khan, the managing director at the VC firm Energy Impact Partners. Shale, hello. Hey, Stephen. The energy transition. This is a phrase that we constantly use on this podcast, mostly to define markets, technology, business models. But what about people? The transition away from fossil fuels isn't a nice-to-have, it's a must-have. And the hardest part isn't building the clean resources, it's shutting down the dirty stuff at a pace the science demands. And that means, at some point, disrupting entire classes of employment and entire communities that depend on fossil fuel extraction. In other words, helping people find work somewhere else. The phrase that's often used is the just transition. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We have a great guest with us who has been researching this, and he's going to walk through how it might play out. But first up, let me pull up the results of our decarbonization draft from last week. Shale, do you have uh, the Twitter poll handy? I I don't remember what you're talking about, Stephen. (laughs) So uh, last week, Shale and I had $25 billion to spend on public companies, and we formed our acquisition strategy, a variation of our decarbonization draft, and then we had you vote. And I've got the Twitter poll up here. It looks like 63% of voters chose my team, 37% chose your team. How does it feel? I don't know. I feel like a lot of people who voted had like some random first name followed by seven numbers in their Twitter handle. I, I I have a I have a suspicion around some Russian bot activity is all I'm saying. <laughs> so Sam Evans Brown, who is the host of the Outside In podcast and a friend of this podcast, tweeted just today, just before we recorded. I was very pleasantly surprised to listen to this latest edition, and hear Stephen Lacey quite clearly trounce Shale Khan for once. Now I love every part of that tweet except for one the uh, for once part. Yeah, at least he said for once that. It was a salve for my ego. No, look, you you appear to have won fair and square. Congratulations. Okay, Shale, let's get into the topic at hand. I'm going to play a clip of a well-known politician attempting to grapple with this issue of the transition for fossil fuel workers. I want to get your reaction. I'm the only candidate which has a policy about how to bring economic opportunity using clean renewable energy as the key into coal country because we're gonna put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business, right, Tim? And we're gonna make it clear that we don't want to forget those people. 
do you remember this moment? I do. Yeah. What happened? Oh, she got booze, right? Because she was in... Yeah. Did, wasn't she in West Virginia giving that speech? She was in Ohio. She's in Ohio. This is a campaign stop in Ohio. And she was trying to... Hillary Clinton was trying to lay out her plan for how to help coal communities. And as she wrote in her book, it just didn't come out right. Um, she was castigated for the remark about putting coal miners out of work. It haunted her throughout her campaign. It even caused coal miners to come and disrupt her events afterward. And um, she she did talk about this in her book after the election. She said, I wish I could have found the words or emotional connection to make them believe how passionately I wanted to help their communities and their families. And she explained that, you know, the, the meaning behind her remarks was that she had a renewable energy transition plan in place and that she was going to help those people who were um, going to be out of work. But as you can tell, the language just didn't come out right. And it's one of the reasons why it's very difficult to have this conversation, uh, particularly in America with today's you know, political environment. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously inartfully worded um, and didn't convey the message that she meant to convey. But like you said, it's a thorny, it's really, it's tough. It's daunting to figure out how to talk about this stuff in a way that is empathetic, but also reflects, you know, a... Uh, a really aggressive stance toward combating climate change simultaneously and say that to people who are undeniably going to be affected by this. It's, it's tricky. It's why I'm, I'm sort of excited for this conversation because I've never figured out a way to um, feel really comfortable in my shoes when I'm talking about it. Well, very few people have, and that's why we have barely started talking about this transition, barely begun grappling with the economic consequences of abandoning large swaths of the fossil fuel industry and therefore the fossil fuel workforce, right? What are we going to do with folks who are facing this uncertain future? And that's exactly what we're talking about today. And we have a guest who's been researching and writing about this subject for years. His name is Sandeep Pai. Sandeep, welcome. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. We're thrilled to have you here. We've been reading your research. So Sandeep is a former journalist. He's a current PhD student and public scholar at the Institute of Resources, Environment, and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. And he recently co-wrote an analysis looking at the peer-reviewed literature and reports about the just transition and came up with a list of these proposed strategies for transitioning fossil fuel workers. Um, Sandeep, you worked for several years in South Asia as a as journalist. You wrote for national and international newspapers and magazines. You also are the author of a book called Total Transition, The Human Side of the Renewable Energy Revolution. So the human piece of this transition has been really central to your work. Why? Why have you devoted your research to the social dimensions of the energy transition? Okay. I mean, that's a really good question. So like you mentioned, I started as a journalist in India. And in my very early years of journalism, um, I had the opportunity to work with an editor who said, you know, go, do not cover energy issues sitting in Delhi or Bombay. Just go to these places, you know, talk to people, report about different energy uh, policies and how it impacts, you know, these areas and what are the conversations going on. And so that's the one piece of it. The second piece was India, India had a big scam or, or, uh, you know, a corruption allegation that came out about uh, unlawful allocation of coal blocks uh, across the country. 
And and so for that also I was sent to all these coal mines and you know power plants and uh, all these different like uh, supply chain uh, locations uh, and I met thousands of workers people engineers you know from you know people who are blasting um, for mountain top removal uh, to people who are working in power plants I mean and one thing that was fascinating was that all of them were told or they believed that you know they are doing something larger they're providing the fuel they're pro- providing the electricity uh, that is needed for india's you know uh, growth and development and so there was a there's a lot of pride among people that i met um and i mean i also got to understand the scale of this problem i mean i was not thinking from a problem from a point of view of climate change at that point but um but just the fact that how many people how how many towns are associated with these industries was just an eye opener so that was like my early years of journalism and i got introduced to this topic and at that time primarily in india climate change was not really like a you know like a hot topic as i would say it is uh, now and the demands for climate action was not huge um but i some of the conversations started penetrating and i understood that you know it we must move away from these dirty industries uh for uh, and move towards low carbon sources but i was just curious what's what is going to happen to these people like you know will we just abandon them or or you know sort of like is there a plan and so that was my curiosity that sort of led me into this topic So I want you to read something for me. Let's read the first paragraph of the introduction to your book, because I do think it's quite powerful and sets the stage well. His eyes, set in a weathered face, were red from the coal dust blowing through the village. Standing next to his house, dressed in a skirt like lungi, and a dirty yellow and gray strip work shirt, he told us, quote, The coal industry is dirty and I am dying a slow death living here but I have no other option a thin and wiry coal worker suresh bhuiya was vocal about his situation when we met him in jharia the heart of india's coal mining belt quote if i got the opportunity i would love to work in the solar industry but how will i find a job my present is painful but the future is uncertain my present is painful but the future is uncertain that's so powerful what does suresh represent to me suresh represents millions of fossil fuel workers uh i wouldn't say all of them but a lot of them are suffering due to climate you know due to environmental and health reasons uh so suresh represents these millions of workers who are really worried about their future who are really worried about what is going to happen to them will they be abandoned will politicians take care of them will there be policies to make sure that that children continue to go to school they have a continuous income uh, and their communities continue to flourish uh, suresh also represents someone who would resist politically and resist hard if one doesn't take care of them uh and one doesn't implement just transition policies that are just not for the sake of saying but are really meaningful um you know it is concrete and is planned and now increasingly many people globally uh, are believing especially in the climate movement that 
it is an imperative that we take care of people like Suresh. It's Im- it's important from an ethical and um, justice uh, point of view. Two things strike me from what you've been saying so far. The first is, um, this perhaps will come as no surprise to many folks in the audience, but nonetheless, I think, you know, being here in the United States with a typically American-centric mindset, when we think often of the just transition, and particularly in light of like political events over the past few years, we're often thinking of places in the U.S., like Ohio, as we mentioned before, and West Virginia, and other sort of coal-centric communities in the United States. Uh, this is very much a, a global issue, certainly in any uh, regions that have significant fossil fuel extraction and utilization. One of the things that I appreciated about the research that you just published that that we'll talk about is that it was very global in nature. You looked at 33 different articles, of which 11 were focused on the U.S., nine were global, a bunch in Australia, which is another country that has a big issue here. And so I'm curious, um, just at the high level, what you think is similar across the way that individual countries or regions are facing this just transition issue um, and what's different? It's it's a very interesting and very important question. Give me a give me two minutes to explain this. Um, so I divide this problem into two sort of like two sets of countries, all of which are major fossil fuel producers. Um, and this is a bigger problem uh, for countries that produce fuel uh, because most jobs in fossil fuel industries are on the fuel side, uh, coal mining and oil and gas extraction, then uh, refineries also have some jobs, but um, but say compared to power plants. Uh, so let me divide these countries into two. Uh, one is countries where the climate movement is very strong. Um, and you could say in some senses, US, Australia, Germany, you know, the, the West, uh, where there is increasing pressure on governments uh, to move away from fossil fuels. And and so there is more of a conversation about this topic. I would say there's there's more awareness about this topic compared to the rest of the world. Then we take countries like India and China, which have huge fleets of very young power plants. It's very different from like the West, where the power plant's average age is, I think, something like 40, where India and China is like 16 or 11, and, you know, mining and uh, and and the supporting mining industry. So for these countries, these conversations haven't even started. And that is problematic. I mean, it's problematic for both levels, because where the conversation has started, we we are not really seeing, except one or two cases, really solid just transition plants. Uh, it's more of at this stage, it's more like, okay, we need to do something and, you know, like, let's transition all these workers into renewable energy and, and things like that, which is not really feasible. Um, and for countries like India, this conversation hasn't even started, but the scale of dependence on these jobs are much higher in these countries. I feel like the conversation has barely started here as well. You heard the clip of Hillary Clinton. You've mentioned her in your research as well. I mean, she got attacked relentlessly for attempting to have that conversation. And I don't think that our political system is, even in a country like the U.S., where we're advanced in the climate conversation, we're capable of really talking about it in a sophisticated way. I, I 100% agree. Uh, but the fact that there is a conversation is a good start. 
There is no conversation in India, for example. The Interchange is brought to you by Prisma Energy Solutions. Prisma helps developers, municipalities, commercial industrial customers all reduce their energy demand charges, generate income, increase grid reliability, and meet sustainability goals. Prisma's five-year lease offering reduces transaction costs and allows customers to benefit from storage without being exposed to the financial and operational risks of ownership. Prisma has relationships with top-tier suppliers and integrators in the battery energy storage industry, and they can customize lease options to fit any customer's needs. There's no design or tech risk, no maintenance or warranty hassle, and the upfront capital expenses are reduced to a minimum, especially compared to a purchase. At the end of the lease term, customers have the option to renew, return, or purchase the battery system, creating even more project value. You can find out more at prismaenergy.com. We're also brought to you by Vertzilla Energy. With 72 gigawatts of power plant capacity in 180 countries around the world, Vertzilla offers flexible power plants, energy storage, and life cycle services that ensure increased efficiency and guaranteed performance. Vertzilla has taken a leading role in supporting the energy sector as it undergoes a transformation toward greater flexibility, efficiency, and sustainability. And based on the modeling of 145 countries and regions worldwide, Vertzilla's team was able to find the cost-optimal energy mix for a 100% renewable energy system in all of the regions, known as the Atlas of 100% Renewable Energy. Boy, I wouldn't want to have one of those analysts here battling against us in a decarbonization draft. Sounds like they got all the tools there. The goal of the Atlas is to help customers choose future-proof solutions as we build out the future energy system. Check out the Atlas and see your optimal path at vertsilla.com slash atlas. That's W-A-R-T-S-I-L-A dot com slash atlas. Reflecting on both your quote from the Indian coal miner and what Hillary Clinton said. And, and, you know, the Indian coal miner said, I'd love to get a job in solar, but how would that even happen? And, you know, what Hillary Clinton basically tried to say, apart from the really inartful wording of we're going to put a lot of coal companies out of business, I mean, what, what she, I think, was saying at a high level is what you hear a lot from, I think, progressive politicians in the United States, which is like, well, we will replace the dirty fossil fuel jobs with new clean energy jobs. And, I wonder, first of all, from a rhetorical standpoint, um, how what you've seen in terms of how the what the reaction looks like from fossil fuel workers when they hear that. Is it just that they don't believe it because they haven't seen it? Um, is it that they're not interested? Like, what's what's the reaction? So this is again again a really great question, and I love this question. Um, so, I mean, generally, the working class has been cheated. It, it's a global phenomenon. Whenever industries have declined, be it steel in the U.S. or textile or the cord in like, you know, Atlantic cord in Canada or many industries, small scale or large scale that have declined, governments have not done an adequate job. Generally, I mean, there may be some cases here and there and some examples of certain programs working well, but by and large, the perception and uh, for one of my research, I read extensively on this topic the overall income levels have gone down, even if they have found the next job. Uh, you know, there have been massive health issues associated with that, that children were not able to go to school. So generally, the working class doesn't believe that something will come of this. And then when somebody goes in, and most of the rhetoric, again, 
problematically is associated with or transition to clean energy jobs. I think that's a really problematic problem. In one of my own research, we show that there's a complete mismatch between areas suitable for solar and wind power uh, in India, China, Australia, and US. So we looked at four countries. And especially wind is like, I think, very, way, way far. Solar still is okay for countries, some parts of India and Australia. Like from a pure techno-economic suitability point of view, solar and wind cannot cut it in those local areas. Now, you could believe that some would move, but but it's not easy to just move, wrap up everything, your real estate and, you know, whatever little housing money you have. So people, I think that there is some suspicion that this is not going to happen. One problem is that we don't have a lot of evidence of this happening well. And the second problem is that right now, all of these conversations are pretty much at conversation and dialogue stage. And even in those countries, there's no sort of like real hardcore plans of, okay, your jobs, you're guaranteed a job or whatever. I'm not advocating for one thing or the other, but like, uh, it's one thing to say, uh, you know, I will transform this region using clean renewable energy. It's another thing to say, these are the five plans I will implement. So I think that's something that is missing. This is a really important point to hang on because what happen- happens is that very rarely workers who are impacted are not going into equivalent jobs in industry. They're often going into lower paying retail jobs, for example. And so a lot of government retraining programs here in the United States have not been very effective. And so, as you said, the track record is not very good. And so there's a lot of inherent cynicism about yes. what jobs yeah. are available when, say, the extraction jobs go to go away. Absolutely. There was a paper about OECD countries and they looked at all the retraining programs and the outcomes of related to that. And it was pretty clear that most people who found jobs, A, went to retail industries or some such, um, and B, were had to settle with lower paying, much, much lower paying jobs. And just one point I think it's important to add here is that in most countries, for direct fossil fuel jobs are very well paid jobs. Um, and, and so it's a huge, it's a huge change. And, and there is a structural reason for that. Uh, when we think about North America and Europe and, you know, the private companies which run these fossil fuel, uh, industries, uh, they, they pay their workers fine. But when you look at majority of where the fossil fuel production happens, the Middle East, India, China, like 60% of fossil fuel production is done by government-owned companies. So they have a dual mandate to produce energy, but also engage in welfare of the country and citizens. So if you look at Coal India, and this is the last point, if you look at Coal India Limited, which is the world's largest coal mining company, uh, in its in its documents it will mention that the need the role is to produce coal an important source of energy but also take care of people and communities around and it does spend a lot of money in those regions building schools hospitals and so on so i think we've we've done a fairly good job so far of laying out all the reasons this is really hard do we have any examples of regions or communities that have gone through such a transition, either specifically with regard to the just transition away from fossil fuels or even in other sectors as well, um, that have done it right? 
like, do we have some shining beacon we can look toward? <laughs> um, I think that uh, I wouldn't say it's hundred percent great, but I think that one of the one of the few of the good examples come from hard coal mining in Germany. Um, it was it is often said or cited as a successful case where the German government. I mean, the the reason was that the hard coal mining sort of was, you know, economically uh, more expensive than, say, imported coal. Uh, and so the so from an economics point of view, it made sense to shut down these mines. But, I mean, uh, politically, it was hard. So the German government, both at the federal level and at the state and, you know, sort of like whatever the the local level came together along with a very strong and powerful union that was operating in that region and came up with a just transition plan. And the, there was two distinct features of that plan that I think is often sort of a benchmark in this space. One is that they guaranteed that any worker who has worked for 20 years um, can, uh, at the age of uh, 48, can sort of retire and get a stipend, which which was good, good. Uh, and at the and when they retire, they'll continue to get pension. And all the younger workers had sort of gotten a guaranteed job and retraining. Um, and that was sort of guaranteed by the government. So that went down really well. And they made this as a long term plan for 10 years. So this plan was made in 27 or 2007 and subsequently updated. And the last hard coal mining was finished in Germany in 2018. So what does that tell us about the elements that are necessary for this transition? I'm hearing two very important things, and that is a guaranteed pension and guaranteed wages. Yeah. So I would say I would start with something like a really long term vision and planning. Uh, right now, the problem in the just transition space is that many people, groups, governments are completely sort of doing it, you know, on their own and, and there is no coordinated planning. So if I were to start thinking about an important element of just transition, my first would be an over encompassing element of uh, sort of like long term strategic planning where you create a mechanism by which the federal government and the states or the provinces and the local governments who would be impacted as 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 well as the workers and the union representatives come together and negotiate a plan that makes economic and political sense uh, so that i think is one of the key elements of just transition without that what would happen is that certain regions because of certain interventions may might do well but most regions will not see the same fruit so first is long-term planning and it's important to recognize areas that are vulnerable to decarbonization we don't even really know that we can say that okay any area which is close to a coal mine or a power plant is vulnerable from a risk point of view of you know economic losses but it's important to do those studies and recognize areas vulnerable to decarbonization in every country. So that's my first. Coming back to the wages and the pensions, let's start with wages first. Uh, so, I mean, so 
one of the things is that we always refer to just transition from the point of view of those direct fossil fuel workers who are mi- working in say coal mines or power plants or rigs etc but there are millions of indirect jobs that that get benefited from uh, that benefits from the continuation of coal or oil industries uh there's induced jobs so people working in cafes and restaurants you know where coal workers go and spend their money uh, and studies show that uh the ratio of indirect jobs and induced jobs are 1 is to 10 and 1 is to 8 in some cases it depends on the country and the context so we are talking about one coal worker sort of uh, and they're spending and uh, supporting eight other workers so it's a huge deal so when we start these conversations about wages it's it's really important that we recognize both direct workers and indirect and induced workers because as one very uh, one union leader told me that you know the coal industry may be divided in normal days and you know the unions are fighting against each other the the workers are fighting the coal companies but when you attack their industry all direct indirect induced and every kind of worker will come together and resist so it's really important to think about the wages uh from the point of view of whether you can actually compensate wages for all different workers the last piece of it is pension and it's a really really important topic and completely ignored in the context of just transition thus far uh so in some countries the pension model is that you know like in canada the pension is run by the federal government so it doesn't really matter if coal declines or any other country declines like government of canada will continue to pay that pension but in india pension is managed by or or even in some other i think in us too uh, the pension is a contribution of the worker 50% in some cases and the contribution of the coal company so they contribute to this fund which pays out when the worker retires so if you cut the coal industry uh, i think that that's going to affect a lot of workers and in terms of just sheer numbers there are more coal pensioners in india than coal miners today in the direct coal industry that's the same case in the us as well so so this is also we are talking about a lot of people uh, and if you add their families and 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 so on so it's it's really a huge thing we have to think about and it's important that we ensure that people who have worked in the mines for like 100 you know like for their lifetime pretty much are taken care of when they retire in most cases with some health issues so the elements to a just transition you just outlined are extraordinarily complicated and you mentioned at the beginning of the show that this is a conversation that is starting to gain some level of sophistication in, in a place like the United States where we've been talking about climate change for a while but still it's extraordinarily nascent and i feel like a lot of the environmental groups and activists have not done a great job of framing the complexity of this issue. They just say shut down fossil fuels and there's really no follow-up to explain how you would do that from a workforce perspective. Um has the conversation gotten better? Are you hearing environmental groups, progressive groups start to integrate some of these uh concrete examples in the way they frame this issue? We 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 have to take this in uh, in sort of like two two periods one was the pre covid period where most of the conversations most of the slogans that i heard was about shutting down the fossil fuel infrastructure 
and it basically stopped there. But now I have seen increasingly, you know, when governments are starting to think about bailout packages for fossil fuel industries, um, I have seen that many activists, especially in North America, have 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 started saying that you know uh, let's let's kill the industry but support the workers uh, and that i think is a really positive change in terms of nuances i'm not very sure if that has emerged yet but uh, but at least it's a good start that's so interesting that you're thinking about this issue pre-covid and post-covid because one thing that strikes me about what's happening right now is that the government the U.S. government and governments around the world are spending trillions of dollars on stimulus packages. And as far as I can tell, and please tell me what the numbers look like, but if you're bailing out an industry, uh, say the coal industry in the United States, it would cost maybe hundreds of uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. You know, we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars each bill to protect workers right now. So feasibly, if we're tossing around those numbers, you could imagine the government spending a big chunk of change that at this moment in time, seems perfectly reasonable to help the, that workforce make the transition, to give them guaranteed wages and pensions. So do you feel like this changes the art of the possible in any way? It does. I mean, so again, just thinking about it from a cost point of view, there are some studies which show that you don't really need a ton of money. But I would like to add a caveat here that we are only and all these studies are only referring to direct jobs not indirect and indirect induced jobs so if we just focus on for example direct jobs then in the u.s you really need 600 million a year according to one study uh, of course they don't take into account everything even for direct jobs but you need uh, 600 million every year to to guarantee wages for five years for fossil fuel workers who lose their employment and that their scenario is also that you know us reduces emissions by 40% by 2035 so it's not talking about all workers and it's not a complete 100% fossil fuel phase out but if you reduce emissions by 40% and its impact on coal oil and natural gas the country would need 600 million per year which i would argue is not I mean, compared to the bailout trillions of dollars of bailout packages we are talking about, um, it seems that it's feasible. I mean, one of the issues, I think there's a, a couple of issues probably there, though, right? Even if you do that, one, you've, you've guaranteed wages and pensions, perhaps for, for some number of years, but you haven't, you know, these communities that are entirely reliant on a single industry don't get any long-term support. And so after the five years runs out or when people take those wages and they move somewhere else where there's more opportunity, you still end up with these hollowed out communities, which we've seen in the industrial Midwest in the U.S. as well. That feels like one challenge to me. And the other challenge, not to get too deep in the political weeds, but you know the, the idea of guaranteeing wages and pensions, um, you've got a, a you know an entire half of the political spectrum in the United States that sort of tends to oppose anything that looks like an increase in the welfare state. And so I, I imagine that presents a challenge for getting something like that done. So do, do those two things, first of all, are those real challenges? And second of all, do they seem surmountable to you? So, I mean, what, what we are discussing here, what 
people have researched are all very theoretical ideas at this stage. I mean, it's almost like a, an idea of 100% renewable energy in some senses, which which has a market force here. There's no market also. Uh, so it makes it even more harder and it's even more sort of reliant on political intervention and how it would play out and whether the political class or the half of the U.S. that you're referring to would even accept this kind of idea is is totally an open question, right, at this point. I think we need to establish the why we're having this conversation. I set out some of the stakes at the beginning of the show, but what is the urgency in establishing legitimate policy to transition, you know, segments of the fossil fuel workforce. I mean, what is the science telling us? And what does that mean for how quickly we need to implement policies and bring together unions and local leaders and actually like get people to trust that this transition will be in their benefit? I mean, so depending on which models you choose, uh, it's very, very clear that we have to move away from all fossil fuels. Um, uh, the the exact you know the numbers and the pace is is sort of depending on again the models, but it's clear that by in the next one or two or three decades we have to substantially reduce our share of fossil fuels, starting with coal, but also other other fossil fuels. So from a scientific point of view, it's absolutely necessary to move away from these sources if we have to meet you know, well below two degree targets in line with the Paris agreements. Um, but that has, again, implications on a large number of people. And yeah. What does that mean in terms of number of people? I mean, like, have you quantified the number of people that will lose or need to transition their jobs? So according to our estimates, and this is, again, only direct jobs, and I would say direct jobs are a small share of the overall jobs that are dependent on uh, the fossil fuel industry. Uh, only in terms of direct jobs, we we have estimated around 12 million direct jobs. And we don't account for all categories of direct jobs because of sheer, uh, sheer difficulty in calculating some of the job numbers. And that's a global number. Uh, so when we say 12 million, we are talking about maybe, I don't know, into three or four per family. So if when you if you want to add the family, um, so so that's the direct now. Then there is indirect, and there is induced. Then pensioners. It's it's just very hard to quantify. There's one more other aspect I think that is really really important in this context is that jobs is one aspect of just transition and very important and central aspect of just transition. The other key aspect is local revel- revenues. Lots of lots of places in India, lots of counties, perhaps in the U.S., are dependent on local revenues from this dominant industry. And that, if those revenue streams are not replaced, that would have serious implications for the whole sort of like the community, even if somebody is not getting anything from the coal industry. So that's another thing. And the last piece of this is railways, often an ignored uh, part of this this puzzle uh, i'll take give the example of india 50 percent of railway freight revenues come from coal and railway has 1.3 million people working in india um, so and the model in india is that you uh, subsidize the passenger segment and uh, sort of like you know you overcharge the coal 
coal threat. And so that that also has serious implications for sort of that industry and, and so on. And I mean, there's much more, but I would stop here. <laughs> I do want to make one other point, though, which is, you know, Stephen, you're asking sort of how many in order to meet our uh, two degree target or anything like that from a climate change perspective, how, how fast will we need to move away from this? And that's a that's a good question. But it is worth noting that, you know, I think mar- market trends will um, perhaps more slowly cause a lot of this to happen anyway, certainly with coal. Um, maybe over a much, much longer period of time with with other fossil fuels, but in the case of coal, right? Like the coal industry is in decline, certainly in in Western countries. Sandy, if you can tell me the latest status in in China and India, but you know this is a this is a the just transition is relevant whether you are taking really significant action on climate change or not, right? Just from a pure political and economic development standpoint, you need to figure out what to do about these communities either way. I, it's it's a really, really good observation. And there are also studies which show that general industrial decline, wherever they have happened, and if the interventions were not good, um, has led to communities moving in their political right. So uh, they are supporting candidates who have extreme views. Uh, it's... I mean, the, the interesting thing in Germany is where the coal is declining, the lignite, the the right parties, you know, the party AFD, uh, which believes in anti-immigrant and those sentiments, so uh, are rising. So this economic insecurity is uh, is kind of sometimes uh, there is some relation between the rise of sort of these extreme political and social movements. Should we just nationalize these industries and basically essentially like buy out these power plants and coal mines and guarantee wages and just take this top down approach? I, I feel like I've heard a lot more people propose that here in the US, at least, um, that we should just buy out the coal industry, make people whole. And um, it's as simple as that. What, what are your thoughts on some of the proposals you've seen or this top down approach? I mean, it's a good point, but I just don't see any evidence from history that this will lead to an energy transition. Um, and the funny thing is that I I keep telling this, that 60% of fossil fuel production is not done by private companies. It's done by government-owned companies. You have the Saudi Aramco's of the world to coal India to all the state-owned enterprises in China, Petrobras. I mean, these are already owned by the government. So if you're only talking about US, it's a big decision. So I would, we need to see some evidence of this really happening. If you were an advisor to, say, a Joe Biden administration, and we have a Democrat who comes in who takes this seriously, what would you tell him and his staff about what they should be doing to set the stage for real decision making that will help us truly grapple with phasing out the fossil fuel industry from a workforce perspective? The first thing I would do is or I would propose is that you do an extensive consultation in all fossil fuel regions. Based the the objective of the consultation should be that we are thinking of phasing out fossil fuel. Um, I mean, there's no easy way. So you have to start these conversations uh, and 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 then come up with a plan 
and say, okay, so based on what people think, we, we are going to phase out these industries in X and Y year in different jurisdictions. Uh, and then have a really concrete plan engaging with these people. One thing that is very clear is that not everybody loves these industries. People, this is their economic, you know, this this is their job and this is what brings food to table. But not everyone in these regions or not every fossil fuel worker is, you know, completely committed to this industry. So you have to tap into those areas. Not all unions are still sort of like gaga over, you know, coal continuation of coal mining. So there are some cracks there, which which one has to explore depending on the region and, and, and the places. And and it should not be a top-down decision. That would be a disaster, saying we are phasing out coal in U.S. in 2030. I would not start with that. I would I would start with consulting and coming with up with a plan, which is concrete, before I announce a date, for example. Yeah, in some ways, this, this state, I mean, it's easier said than done, but it, it does seem like the the order of operations sort of matters here. And this is perhaps part of where the problems have been in the past when Hillary Clinton says, we're going to shut down a bunch of these businesses and give you a bunch of clean energy jobs. But the people in those communities actually have seen no evidence that those clean energy jobs are, are there at their doorstep awaiting them. Then of course they are skeptical that that is going to be real. And as you said, Sandeep, there's plenty of evidence in history that the government won't provide. So if you get the opportunity, it feels like you act first and then talk about it after. So it feels to me like the biggest, most complicated piece of this is not what plan works, what region can you implement this in? It's all about identity. And plenty of people who work in fossil fuel extraction have the most terrible jobs. They probably don't like their jobs, but there's a certain identity, um, a political or geographical identity tied to them that is extremely hard to break. And that's the piece that I really don't know how you get around. That to me feels like one of the more difficult pieces of this transition. And that gets back to how you cover this, the human side, the identity that people have with their jobs that uh, maybe is the hardest part to change. Absolutely. But I also believe that if you offer people a reasonable option, um, some of these identity issues could be, I'm not saying all, there's no, you know, binary zero or one, but um, like, especially with younger workers, uh, they may, they may be willing to try something new. It's, I mean, one is the serious, you know, identity issue of having, let's say, cricket clubs in India and like soccer clubs. And, you know, you are part of, you go underground together and then you play the soccer. And there's a lot of identity issues there. But it's also the lack of alternative opportunities that, that really matters. If, if even before I want to shut down this power plant in this town, if I go there and provide people with something that I'm not saying it's it should be exorbitant, but like something that they see value in, um, people might be willing to try it. Well, I really enjoyed reading your research. I think it's a very important start to this conversation and we'll link to it in the show notes so that other people who are thinking about this and trying to adopt 
and discuss concrete policies, can think through some of the principles that you've outlined. Um, Sandeep Pai is a PhD student and public scholar at the Institute of Resources, Environment, and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. He's also the author of Total Transition, The Human Side of the Renewable Energy Revolution. Sandeep, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you both. Shale, um, if I need a new co-host, now I have a plan to find you a new job. <laughs> as long as my transition's just, I'm okay with it. <laughs> Shale Khan is my co-host. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. We are a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. As always, comment and suggest story ideas on Twitter. You can find uh, me and Shale there. You can find Ingrid there. You can find Interchange Show there. And you can find Sandeep there as well. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Mm-hmm.